0: You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called Wasted Potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called a portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my ape pets who will not hit the cell until your account either flies, or flops, and DIES! Hello everyone, and welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host Alex Marku, today is November 19th, 2021. And on today's episode, I'm going to go over Robinhood and Citadel Securities court ruling. I'll talk about the first perfect round robin I had and give out my weekend bet picks. And then I'll wrap up the episode with the conclusion of the derivatives market. By the end of the episode, you should get a better idea of how large this market really is. Financial disclaimer. Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. (laughs) welcome back apes and retail investors that think alike. On today's investing segment, I'm going to give an update of the portfolio. I'm then going to talk about the court ruling between Citadel Securities and Robinhood and how there was no collusion determined by the case. And then I'll give my two cents on it. And then to wrap up the investing segment, I'll give a quick little sneak peek into what stocks I'll be looking into next week. So let me jump right into the portfolio update. Since the last episode, I was able to buy two of the options I had my eye on. I was able to buy one of the $7.50 calls for CRTX that expires December 17th, and I was able to buy it at an average cost of $0.10 cents per contract. It actually says I bought it at 0 107 cents per contract, so if you want you can round that up to $0.11. Cents. For the second contract I bought, it was a Super League Gaming one that is set to expire April 14, 2022 of next year. I bought this for roughly 50 cents as well, if you want you can round it to 51 because I bought it at 0.507. I'm pretty sure that 07 difference is just the commission that they make, because I did set this at a buy limit if you remember. So if it triggered the buy limit at 50 cents, the extra small difference is probably just commission because this is options. So now that these two options are in our portfolio, I'll be sure to keeping an eye on them and making sure to give you an update on them as well. Also, if there's a ridiculous spike within the coming weeks, let's say, and one of these option contracts gets super high valued and you're holding on to it, feel free to sell it and take some profits before I even recommend it on the podcast. I won't sell a thing until I say it clearly here. So even if one week the option is, let's say, up 500%, if my next episode is the next day, I'll just wait the next day and then I'll probably tell everyone I'll sell it on a Friday or a Thursday. That way it gives anyone who's following this podcast the ability to have exactly the same percentage gain and loss as me. But as of now, loss is not in my dictionary, because I'm up 18% for this portfolio. Now a lot of it is to do with the gambling segment, and I had a perfect round robin that hit yesterday after the conclusion of Thursday Night Football, but even without betting, this account is still up with its stocks and options plays. I mean did you see GameStop today? It went up nearly 9%, which was about $18, actually 19 if you're considering after hours. But this stock jumped all the way to about $228 and closed around there. So because this fat jump and I bought GameStop around $204, I'm already up $20 on this play. And one of the options is valued a little bit higher so it says I have a nice gain, but these were bought just recently so I'm not going to focus too much on the minimal gains from these. What I will say is that so far from November 4th, 2021, when I started this podcast, I only put a thousand dollars in, and already I have 182 dollars made. Technically, it's all on paper remember, but it's still nice to be up 18% in just under a month, and I only continue to try and make that number way higher. 18%? Those are rookie numbers in this league, especially the league I plan on running. Now to cap off the portfolio update, I'm gonna give you exactly the numbers in each segment. This way, if you start noticing a trend that one of the segments are increasing more, you can decide if you want to play more in that segment. So for my securities section, which is comprised of stocks, options, and then obviously leftover cash, I have about $586 in that account. Remember I started it with $500. In my cryptocurrencies account, I have a total of $234.96. And remember, I started that with 250 There has been a small little correction in the crypto markets, and who's to say this small correction won't lead to a bigger one. Regardless, it's not going to scare me and I'm just going to keep holding on. And for the gambling segment, it's valued at $363.67. And this is as of Friday. Remember, I started with $250 in this account, just like I did with cryptos. But if I were to add up all three segments, which is what comprises this portfolio, It would equal $1,185.21. And two weeks ago, I only had $1,000 that built up this portfolio. Not too bad, but let's see if we can keep this going. Now originally for today's episode, I had planned to talk about three stocks I had in mind to possibly add to this portfolio for next week. But instead, I'm going to talk about some juice. Because yesterday, the court ruling came out that Robinhood and Citadel Securities Did not collude to prevent a short squeeze in January over certain quote-unquote meme stocks. But if you ask me, there's no such thing as a meme stock. Because if you're a stock in the stock market, you're a legitimate company or a really well-orchestrated Ponzi scheme that hasn't been caught yet. For my references, I used an article from The Street since they were one of the few articles that actually gave me access to reading about this ruling without having to buy a subscription. Which quick little side note here. Never pay for a subscription service for financial news. You can literally find all of this shit for free. It's just they don't want to tell you that and they'd much rather have you pay 99 cents so you can hear some BS they spew out of their mouth just so they can pump and dump you. Now that I got that off my chest, the article I read from The Street, which is free again, not a subscription service, was court dismisses suit claiming Robinhood Citadel prevented meme stock trading. So I'll quickly summarize the article for you just so you don't actually have to read on. But what I'm going to be doing is summarizing this article and then using a better article that actually had the case claims on it to try and prove a point. But I'm going to let you as the listener determine what to choose as fact and what to choose as fiction. Okay, so now about the article. It was the U.S. Southern District Judge of Florida, Judge Cecilia Antonaga. That's right. I'm calling people out on this. She ruled that there was not enough evidence to show that Robinhood and Citadel Securities conspired to prevent the trading of companies like GameStop, AMC, and Bed Bath & Beyond, in order to stop a short squeeze. There were many other tickers associated to this list, but those were the three biggest ones. Now, according to the article, it states that Robinhood put limits on trading stocks within certain companies because of the expensive cost of having so many trades all at once. Investors in this class action lawsuit tried to say that these restrictions left them no choice but to sell the stock in order to prevent a lot of financial losses. In other words, the buy button was removed, which any smart person would realize the only way this stock is going to go is down. But it wasn't until after September that the lawsuit was actually filed, because emails were showing that there was communication between Robinhood and Citadel before and after the restrictions were imposed which let me remind you, is January 28th. Please remember January 28th. It's going to be such a key date, especially when I read into the next article. So even though there was communication between Robinhood and Citadel before the restrictions and after, the judge, Cecilia Antanaga, decided that a few vague and ambitious emails between two firms in an otherwise lawful ongoing business relationship are not enough to nudge plaintiff's claims across the line to what is plausibly enough for a court case. What an old hag she must be. But this old hag's ruling made one of the Robin Hood representatives very confident. In fact, he probably had his first erection since the first time he learned how to short stocks. Aside from that, he claimed that this further confirms that the conspiracy theory of collusion has no basis in fact. So you win one court ruling, and wing, there goes your penis. But it's okay, because we have a guy named Frank Shrirepa, and I'm sorry if I said your name wrong. He's a lawyer that's representing the investors, and he told the reporters that he was disappointed in the ruling, but they would be amending their complaint. In order for the suit to be reconsidered, they would need to resubmit a revised version of the complaint that they originally had, by December 20th of this year. So basically in a month. Welcome to the law system for you. You spent a whole year gathering all this information, building together a court claim, and then it gets shut down within a day. And not only that, but if you want to fight back, you have a month to revise everything you just worked on over the last year. Oh well, I think there's a few people out there that are motivated enough to do this. And trust me, as soon as any progress is made, I'll be relaying the information over here, like a proper news channel should. You know, give out real news. So that's pretty much the summarization of the article. Judge Cecilia Antonaga claimed that there wasn't enough evidence to prove that Citadel and Robin Hood colluded amongst restricting certain trades on January 28th. And even though there was communication with them before and after this specific date, it wasn't enough because they had business relations. But that's no match for Mr. Frank Scheripa, who's standing in the far right corner at 510 and he eats shorts for breakfast. He's coming for you, Mr. Robin Hood Representative. You know I don't care how confident you are. I don't care that you said this is a conspiracy theory. And I definitely don't care that that little nudge in your pants finally went up. Alright, well I hope you guys enjoyed my little recap and summarization of that article. Now let me talk about the next article, which I got off of Trustnodes.com, and it's titled Citadel spoke to Robin Hood during GME short squeeze court documents reveal, and this was published. September 27th, 2021. So this is actually important because the difference in articles, this one was published in September 27th, and the one I just talked about and kind of made some fun and light of was published yesterday, November 18th. Just keep that in mind. Now one thing that was cool about this article is that if you scrolled all the way to the bottom after the summary of this claim, it actually had the full claim printed on the bottom. All 137 pages of it. So if you truly want to dive into it, be my guest and search that title of the article I gave you and then click the truenodes.com one. Scroll all the way to the bottom and good luck reading 137 pages because I don't think I could do it. Instead, what I did is I picked three of the most important pages. The important pages that had the actual email transcripts in them and then I compiled it on a timeline journey. Now I'm not gonna tout myself and say that I'm the first one to think of this because this was done months ago by apes on Reddit but I'm just trying to relay this information on a podcast and I'm letting you know where you can get the actual case documents. And if you're just curious to find out and read more about these email transcriptions, the pages I used was roughly around page 61, 81, and 91 out of 137 on that document. I looked at all of the email transcriptions for those three pages and I put it in a timeline event. For me, the timeline goes from January 27th, 4.40 p.m all the way to January 29th, roughly after hours, which for me is 1 p.m. So I'm going to do my best right now to go straightly just down the timeline, and then I'll try and break this apart afterwards. Sorry if it sounds a little bit boring, I'm going to do my best not to make it this boring. So for my timeline events, this all starts with an email from Gretchen Howard on January 27th, around 4.40 p.m., just an FYI that Dan and I are joining Jim at 5 p.m. on a call with Citadel. They reached out and want to speak this evening and we believe they will make some demands on limiting purchase for order flow across the board. We won't agree to anything but wanted to give you a heads up. And email. Then Vlad Tenev, CEO of Robinhood, replies with okay. He then quickly realizes, oh shit, that's all I said. So he sent out three more emails in a row without a reply. Maybe this would be a good time for me to chat with Ken Griffin. You guys can mention that. I've never met him. Later that evening, around 6.24, a senior director of the Clearing Operations House for Robinhood sent out an email to Jim Swartout. Anecdotal evidence that several very large firms are having really bad nights too. Jim Swarthout replied a minute later, which I only do when I really like a girl. Everyone is. You wouldn't believe the convo we had with Citadel, Total mess and email. So these were some of the emails that were floating around January 27th, which if you remember, the restriction was January 28th. And for my little pea brain, if I can remember, because I was watching it live, I think it happened around 8 a.m. Pacific time for me, which that would mean is 11 p.m. Eastern time. And all of these times are Eastern time. But wait, the collusion doesn't stop there. <laughs> allegedly, because it was January 28th, that's right, restriction day, at 5.20 a.m. when some more emails were uncovered. This was an email exchange between a manager of market operations for Robinhood and David Dussault. The manager at 5.19 a.m. January 28th, 2001, roughly about five and a half hours before the buy button was canceled, the manager asks, did we make AMC, GME, only PCO, which means position closing only, and email? David the Set then sent out an email reply around 5.33 a.m. Ah, we will navigate through this NSCC issue. And the NSCC is the National Securities Clearing Corporations. So every time a trade is made, it gets put through the clearing houses. He also then was bold enough to follow up his email a minute later at 5.34 claiming, We are too big for them to actually shut us down." The manager then replies instantly. He didn't wait like David The Set. He replied instantly, We're going to get crucified. For PCOing. And then at 5.47, David The Set replies with just, Yeah. Pretty big time gaps from David The Set replying there if you ask me. It's almost as if he had a really busy morning. Then the manager replies back a minute later, Yeah, seeing the channel now. Unfortunate. Quick side note here, I don't know if he was referring to a channel like on news TV, or if he was referring to the channel as in trades, like the trading channel. Because they actually get to see how orders are routed and everything. David the set then felt the need to reply back a minute later, not wait 10 like his standard time. RHS, Robin Hood Securities, received a very large call, confidentially. All firms on street, Jim is saying are doing the same thing. To which the manager of operations for Robin Hood replied, Yeah, I figured. This is such a horrible look industry-wide. End email chain. Now some information that won't be found in this article, but it can be found from the first congressional hearing, is that Vlad Tenev said he was notified around 6.30 to 7 about these restrictions being placed. And I think that's 6.30 or 7 eastern time. The time these restrictions actually got placed, I believe, do not quote me, was 11 a.m eastern time. If it's not 11 a.m eastern time, the earliest it would've been is 9.30 eastern time because that's when the stock market opens for retail and I can tell you that day when GameStop opened, it wasn't instantly shut off. The buy button was shut off about an hour or so after trading, if memory serves me right. And now this story wouldn't be complete if I didn't tell you what happened the next day because ultimately I think What happens the next day is a sign of people still fighting a battle. Why else would you do something like this? Just sit back, take a listen. I don't want to put thoughts into your head. Listen to these email transcript chains that I put in chronological order. And then at the end of it, I want you to decide if Judge Anna Baba whatever was correct with her case ruling. On January 29th, roughly around 1 p.m., Miles Wellesley, who is the VP of Business Development for Robinhood, decided he needed to give David The Set a little heads up on what was happening in the Reddit community. What Miles Wellesley did was send a link to David The Set of a Reddit forum that literally explained to other Redditors how to buy GME above broker limits. And then he also felt the need to send the same email to Jim Swartout, who I guess is probably on the higher end of this little pyramid they've got going here. But the thing that gets me isn't that he sent out these emails of Reddit forums explaining how you can buy more GameStop shares than brokers are letting you to these guys. It's the fact that he says in the very beginning of his email before the link, FYI, Apex reached out to me to make sure we saw this. And then Miles also had the need to tell Jim Swarthout, I told Dave as well, seems like we're on top of it. What the fuck does seems like we're on top of it means? You literally sent a link of a Reddit forum to your bosses saying, these guys are scary, they wanna buy more GameStop. Why is that a problem? You're supposed to be transacting the trade. Not trying to rule it. Unless... you're on the losing end of a deal. Wink wink. And who is Apex if you ask? Well Apex is another clearinghouse. And I might not be 100% correct with this information, But I believe Apex was Robin Hood's primary clearinghouse. And according to the judge, that would just be considered a very strong business relationship. Both Jim and David didn't really feel any urgency. You can tell based on the email replies. David just said thanks, and then later on he also replied back with, We saw some of this today. Didn't see this post yet though, there were a couple of approaches. What do you mean approaches? Like are you at war with Redditors? Because, you said you weren't. And then Jim just says thanks. Thank you, Jim Swartout. Such a good COO. It seems like that COO position at Robinhood's almost just as interchangeable as the synthetic shares they create. So that's it. That's my little email timeline. From January 27, 2021, 4.40pm, all the way to January 29th, the day after the restriction period, around 1pm. There were some things I left off because I didn't find the email chains and the actual claim itself. But if you were to read the claim, you would just find more juicy secrets. For example, one of them that I'll give you is that on January 27th, yes, the day before our magical day, Jim Swarthout was messaging with some of Citadel's representatives at 8.16 p.m. He was looking for new Citadel numbers, as in phone numbers to call. Yes, and at 9.31, guess what? The Citadel rep replied, the numbers are firming up. This meant they were literally making new phone numbers in one hour. Do you have access to that as a retail trader? Do you have access to just completely cover up everything you do? I don't believe so. And they still didn't cover it up. You see, the truth is gonna hit the fan eventually. In accounting, the truth always comes out. That is one thing I learned while going to school. And it doesn't matter how hard you try and cook numbers, burn books, all this stuff. Eventually, It all comes out. So either I'm going to look like a dumbass for making this single-handed claim, and I'll look like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, or you're being lied to by a couple of greedy players in this financial structured system, and they were placed in certain positions that they could just suck on their thumbs and get what they want. Well, soon they're going to be sucking on Kongs, dude. So yeah, that's my two cents, and that's my interpretation of the court ruling. I mean, we got the court ruling yesterday, so everything is still pretty fresh, but using what we know so far, I mean, it's kind of hard to see how a judge could rule that this was not collusion, unless you have some really highly paid, sophisticated lawyers on the defense who were able to, um, you know, work their legalese magic. But don't worry, because we have until December 20th for Mr. Frank Chiripa to work his legalese magic. And I know for a fact, That they're not going to have as much money as Citadel's whole team in one pinky. But I know for a fact that they'll have all the anger, all the motive. And all they need to do is find that needle in a haystack. Because that's what this is. You find that needle in a haystack. And maybe someone can actually go to jail for something like this. Because until someone actually goes to jail for financial fraud. 2008 and market crashes are going to continue to happen. When retailers don't expect the most. And I would just hate for your family, for your parents, or even God forbid you have to come to a day where you're during your retirement and just as you're about to take out all your money, it gets slashed in half because of a market correction that really was just not regulated and accounted for because you've got some greedy 1% at the top. And also for those of you that have listened so far to these investing segments, I know that this is going to be one that's really untraditional. I should have talked about stocks and how i was going to build this portfolio but if i'm being completely honest with you i have such a big play in gamestop and i have so much belief in it and it's honestly the reason why i even started a podcast like this that i feel it's only right to cover this story until the truth finally unfolds and if i look stupid for doing so and i'm wrong in the end i'll call myself out i'll say i was wrong the whole time i will single-handedly go to chicago and Citadel. And I will give Ken Griffin his jar of mayo as an apology gift. And I'll say, sorry for doubting you. Also, if there seems to have been a lot of um, mm, French language in this episode, I apologize for that too. I'm going to try and keep this podcast as clean as possible. But try and remember, this is investing. This has to do with a lot of money. It will eventually have to do with a lot of money. Right now, it's just $1,000. But it's emotional. And I will have emotion in this. And this GameStop play, you bet your damn ass I have a lot of emotion in this. And the fact that a court ruling came out with some stupid bitch that says, oh, there's no collusion, and there clearly is at least communication, and then she says, oh, well, that's just business talk. Shut the fuck up, you old hag. It's about time these old heads get removed from positions of power. Because I swear to God, they're just prolonging it because they don't want the young bloods to come in there and take over their spots. They like the little house they set up, but they don't want to move out, and it's their damn time to get out, all of them. If you feel the same, just yell hell yeah in your car. And if you don't, that's okay, you're entitled to your own opinion. You literally don't have to agree with me. And if you don't even like listening to me, then why'd you listen this far anyway in the first place? But let me move on, so I don't keep talking about this case and start getting angrier. I did say I would give you a look ahead into the three stocks I was looking for next week. And those stocks are Computershare, Overstock, and Chegg. I'm going to be doing my due diligence and some research over the weekend, but overall I know just a little bit about each company. Computershare, if you've heard in my recent episodes, is a transfer agent. More importantly, they're the transfer agent that's affiliated with GameStop. But I'll dive into more detail and why I think they're actually a better stock play and it's not just because they're tied to Gamestop. The second stock I'll be looking into is Overstock. Now, I don't know too much about Overstock, but what I do know is they've blown up over the past year. I want to do some more research and reading into it to understand what they are as a company, but I believe it's something to do along the digital video game e-commerce kind of industry. And then the final stock I'll look into is Chegg. Now, the reason I want to look into Chegg is because these guys fell off a cliff over the last three months. I don't know why, because is their business model flawed? Do people not cheat in school anymore? Am I missing something? So yeah, I'll be looking into those three stocks over the weekend, and next week, I'll be describing all three of them. I might not buy one next week, but I'll at least talk about all three of them as a potential play for this portfolio. Well, that's going to be it for today's investing segment, and if you were expecting more portfolio stock picks and everything like that, I'm sorry that I um, decided to spend today talking about the court ruling, but it is mo ass or bust in here, and until I see GameStop reach 10k, I'm not even going to think about selling. And if it reaches zero, I guess I'll just have to buy a jar of mayo and uh, apologize to Kenny boy. Until next time everyone, ape out. Welcome back Degenerates and apes that just like to listen to my sports investing segment. On today's sports investing segment, I'm going to recap the two round robins I had, and one of them went perfect. A perfect 7 for 7, baby. And then, I'm going to be giving you the picks I have for this upcoming weekend. So let's hop right into it. For my first round robin, the bets that won were the Heat winning by at least 8, the Nets winning by at least 10, Baylor to win by at least 34 and Arkansas to win by at least 12 and a half now my bets that did not hit were the Knicks to win by 12 and they actually lost the Bucks to win by nine and then Texas to win by 22 and then UCLA to finish off the nightcap to win by 26 so I went four for four on these bet picks and by risking $28 I actually wound up losing $5.92 but now without any further ado Let me take you to my first round robin on this podcast that went a perfect 7 for 7, baby. Yes, sir. We risked $28 and we won $48 off of that bet pick. That's essentially doubling your money. So which bets helped this? It was actually Thursday's round robin of the Patriots winning and the game to go under 47 points, which it did. I also had the Heat again to win by at least 7, the Warriors to win by 10, the Jazz to win by 11, and then Florida to win by 16, and Kansas to at least win by 26. All of them hit, so we got to collect all of that cash. But the betting does not stop there. If anything, it just increases as you keep winning. So without further ado, let me just give you the picks I have for this weekend. I'm only going to be creating three round robins, two of them are going to be from the NFL, and one of them is going to be from some soccer leagues. Now I really like betting on soccer because a lot of the odds are plus money. And if you're curious which leagues I'm picking, I'm picking the Bundesliga, the La Liga, and then the Premier League. This is going to be an 8 selection round robin, but for the weekend because the games are played on Saturday and Sunday. From the Bundesliga, I like Dortmund to cover their spread, and I like SC Freiburg to cover their spread. The reason being, Bayern Munich just lost today, so these clubs are going to be fighting hard to get that win. Over on the La Liga side, I like all the teams with Real. I like Real Madrid, Real Sociodad, and Real Betis to cover all of their spreads. And then to cap it off with the Premier League, I like Chelsea, Manchester City, and Liverpool to get wins, or to cover their spread, whichever one has more plus money. I'll be making all 8 picks of those into 1 round robin, and putting a $1 bet on it, which will risk 28 total dollars. I'll recap it Monday and let you know how I did on the soccer league. Now, if you're not too much into soccer, don't worry, I have two NFL bets for you. And I know there's college football and a lot of other sports. I just didn't have the time this week to study or look into the games and make a right pick. So I'm not going to be just handing out those picks. Now, do you remember how on Wednesday I also made a very huge 10 pick teaser? And it also had to do with the Patriots winning yesterday by at least one point. Well, that's still in play. And what I've decided to do is create a round robin out of all the Sunday Slate games. So what that means is for my next round robin, I'm going to have an 18 pick, but it's also going to be following the big teaser play I made. So if these hit, it means my teasers hit. To remind you of what that is, I'm going to be putting the Bills, Ravens, Eagles, Packers, Bengals, Chiefs, and the Washington football team all to cover their spread respectively in one round robin pick. Again, like I've done on all my round robins so far, I'll be putting a $1 bet risk on this, which will be giving it a $28 total risk. And then I wanted to decide to stick along with that one NFL dogs round robin, because you just never know. Any given Sunday, baby. So my slate for the NFL dogs on Sunday is gonna be the Washington football team, the Chicago Bears, the New Orleans Saints, the New York Jets, the Texans, the Lions, the Jags, and the Colts, all to get wins. I guess we'll see what happens, but the more these dogs win, the better payout we get. So let's root for some dogs this Sunday baby. So that's gonna conclude the sports gambling segment for today. I know it's a little short and it seems a little rushed, but honestly, it's just been a busy week, and I didn't have enough time to look down at all the weekend sports coming up, and I didn't wanna just cram some picks at ya. So these are the picks that I'm gonna stand by. And next weekend, maybe we'll have up to 5 round robins, depending on how much we still have in the account by then. So until next time, degenerates and apes, ape out! Hello class and welcome back to the teaching segment of this podcast. Last time I believe I left off after the 87 crash and I talked specifically how after the crash the Black and Scholes model was actually strengthened because originally it wasn't able to predict the volatility of the underlying asset which makes sense because you're not supposed to predict something you're trying to bet on. What I'll be going over today for the derivatives market is an example of four of the most common types of derivatives, which are forwards, futures, options, and swaps. And then after describing each of them as best as I can, and I'll try my best to dumb it down, because even I don't really know it all that well, I'm going to move on to the actual size of this market. And that will paint you a bigger picture of what this market really has the potential to be and what it is. A forward is a contract that is not regulated between two parties to buy or sell an asset at a specified future time at a price agreed upon today, or whenever that contract's written. Before I dive down into my dumbed down version of it, let me give you the definition of a futures contract first. Because a futures contract is essentially a forward contract, but it is regulated, and it's written by a clearinghouse that operates an exchange where the contact can be bought and sold. So essentially. A future and a forward are the same thing, except for one of them is regulated and one of them is not. What's the key difference? Well, the one that's regulated, the party making the trade actually needs to put up some collateral. It's kind of like, if this trade goes down south, you can have my house. Because sometimes with these derivative swings, that's how much money can be lost overnight. But when you get to a forward, it's not like a future. You don't need it regulated. So you don't need to put this collateral. Instead the money builds up over time, and then whoever is on the other end of the party just gives the other person a phone call and says, Hey, your account shows about 2 billion in losses. It'd be really nice if you paid up now. Thank you. And then that's it. That's a simplified version of a margin call. But that's what that is. Someone on the other end is a loser and someone on the other end is a big winner when these trades are made. It's not how they used to be made where it was for hedging risk. They can be used for speculative games, and whoever's playing these stupid games can sometimes win stupid prizes. So you remember my little history on the wheat contract, and how farmers could place their price for it? That's what these are. But now instead of making wheat your underlying asset, you can draw up just about anything you want as an underlying asset. You can make it a stock price, you can make it bonds, you can even talk about weather. I'm dead serious, you can make a derivatives contract on weather. But it doesn't stop there. Why wouldn't you make it on something else like GDP growth and all these other things? Do you see how you can turn the world into a casino? I think that's what this derivatives market was made for. And it was also made for you not to have access to it. So how does payment actually work for this? Well, it works in a form of cash flows and it all derives based on that underlying asset. So basically, if you're the winner on this side of the trade, whoever's on the other end is gonna be paying, let's say these monthly premiums. But if you're not the winner on the end, you're the one who's paying these monthly premiums. And this is called cash flows. This is important because it leads me to my next derivative, which is swaps. Now this one, I'm not gonna be able to dumb down, so I'll just try and explain it after I read the definition. Swaps are derivatives in which counterparties exchange cash flows of one party's financial instrument For those of another party's financial instrument. I'm confused, but kind of not at the same time. I just don't know how I can explain it in a dumbed-down version. But let me try anyways. Let's say there's two people with a forward contract. Now I'm not going to get into details because I don't even know what the details are. But let's say that each month they each get a cash flow payment because they're on the winning side of this bet. Person A gets $50 a month per this forward. And let's say person B gets $40 per month on this forward. Now, you would think, why would they want to swap this? But what if person A thinks that there's a chance that person B's $40 cash flows will actually be greater than his $50 cash flows in the future? What he can do is say, hey, buddy, I'm making $50 per month on this contract. Do you want to trade contracts? And then I can make only $40 a month while you make $50 a month right now? And he says, sure. Now, I don't know if that's how it works, but that's essentially a swap. And then there are the most common types of derivatives that most retailers know because we actually have access to trading these. They're called options. And options are a financial derivative that give the buyer the right, but not the obligation, to buy or sell an underlying asset at an agreed upon price and date. The best way to explain this is honestly just to keep track of my um, investing segment of the podcast because I'll be explaining options as I go along with it, and you'll get a better understanding. I'm not really sure how I can really even dumb it down because this derivatives market is something that's extremely new to me. I just recently learned how to trade options within the past like six months I would say, and I just now had one of my first successful options trades. So I'm starting to get the hang of them, but... Explaining it in an easy version? Sorry, I can't do that today. So for now, unfortunately, this is all the information I can provide on derivatives. Still learning, so as I go along, you'll definitely learn with me. But I'm not done yet. I wanted to save the best information for last. I wanted to give you the actual size, and so you could try and visualize, because I know you won't be able to visualize, the amount of money that actually flows within this derivatives market. I don't even know how it's possible but I kind of do because I can wrap my head around it from being a degenerative gambler for the last year and a half. I can definitely get an idea of how much money actually moves around, but still, it's mind-boggling. I'll run through the numbers just to give you some comparison's sake, but that's really not going to do the justice. I'll save you a little audio clip at the very end so you can really get an idea. All of these numbers I'm getting off of visualcapitalist.com, and it's updated as of May 27, 2020. So, it's about a year and a half old, but it can still give you a representation of how big these markets are. So, let's start off with something we all know, which is the common stock market. How much money is actually floating around in it? About $89.5 trillion. Wow, that's a lot. But how about our money supply, which includes all of our coins, banknotes, money, market accounts, saving accounts, checking, and time deposits? All of this money totaled together is only $95.7 trillion. So roughly our money supply in the stock market are almost one in one. You ready for a fun one? Global debt. You know, money that we owe to who knows who. $253 trillion. Jesus Christ. That's like if you got $100 right now and you owed $250. That's kind of the situation we're in. But don't worry, if we were to look at the global real estate, it's valued at $280 trillion. So at least, if we were to not live anywhere, we could pay off all our debt to the world, to ourselves. Actually, I must have gotten way too ahead of myself. My bad, guys. Because our global wealth is actually valued at about $360 trillion. So if we were to put those over each other, we would at least have a net positive of $7 trillion to work within the world. That's good to know. Now are you ready for the derivatives market? On the low end, this thing is valued at $558 trillion. Yeah, I don't know what numbers I gave you earlier, but this shit is valued at the low end. Do you want to know what the high end valuation of the derivatives market is? And this is as of May 2020. The high end estimate, $1 quadrillion. Jesus Christ, dude. We don't even have a number on that. We don't even know what that number looks like compared to something else. But at least now you know that this derivatives market varies anywhere between $558 trillion and one quadrillion. Doesn't that make you happy? Like all this money is just floating around there somewhere. And it's about a quadrillion of it. If it's not a quadrillion, it's at least 550 trillion. That's insane but that's not gonna paint the true picture of how big the market is. So instead what I'll do as I wrap up today's teaching moment and I know it was a little shorter than normal is I'll paint the picture by using my ending music. For every one second my ending song plays, think of it as a hundred billion dollars. So one second is equal to a hundred billion dollars the second you start hearing the music play. When it stops, we're at the low end valuation of the derivatives market. Well class, if you've made it this late into the episode, I just want to say thank you. Love you, and have a good day. Until next time, ape out. to see if you would listen this long.